Today's podcast is brought to you by Eggshell Light Company. For over 45 years, Eggshell Light Company has been the go-to specialty shop handling the lighting needs for all that grace the shores of beautiful Hawaii. Combining the artistic methods of the theater with the speed and efficiency of the musical touring industry, they have pioneered event lighting throughout the Hawaiian Islands. They specialize in supply of top shelf equipment and designers for broadcast concerts, corporate, and special events. From the smallest weddings to televised concerts and the largest corporate clients, they know this is your most important event. It is their goal to make sure you feel that way. Aloha from Eggshell Light Company. Welcome everyone to another episode of LD at Large Podcast. My name is Chris Lose. I am the designer relations developer at Ayrton Lighting, as well as columnist for PLSN Magazine. I hope you're all enjoying listening and reading. I'm very excited today because I'm kind of looking to write a, a small wrong that has taken place on a, on a much larger scale. I am, I'm very excited to have this conversation today because I'm really, I'm concerned about a lot of the up and coming students in the world of entertainment, because, you know, whether they're in the middle of college, high school, middle, in the middle of getting their masters, a lot of them have put a lot of investment into a very exciting career that has been very well marketed as a very exciting path to make money and and travel and have a wonderful lifestyle. And they, they've all been really excited to kind of get their toes wet in our industry. And then for the, for the last year, our industry has basically been, we basically closed the doors on them. So they're, they're all kind of looking like, what is happening? You know, what, what's going to happen? And I don't know. I have no answers for any of those people. But I do know that there's an entire team, an army, if you will, of teachers that are still out there encouraging these people, still educating, for lack of a better term, the, 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 the children of the next generation of people coming into our industry. And I thought today would be a great way to kind of honor those people and, and really share some unique stories about some very unique individuals in our educational field. So in order to do that, I'm reaching out to a very good, very new friend of mine. His name is Adam Honoré. He is a lighting designer out of New York City. And I recently saw a post of his where he had done an interview. And sadly, it got cut just short uh, where he wasn't able to kind of name some of the most influential people in his life. Some of the people who kind of molded his path towards entertainment and theater lighting. Today's going to be a great day. We're going to kind of sit back and reflect on some of the, the, the brave and influential teachers in our, in our industry. Thank you so much for joining me today, Adam. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Chris. So Adam is in Harlem today. I'm in Windsor. I am, uh, I'm still, we're just about the end of lockdown. So I, I'm probably going to go get a haircut in the next few days. <laughs> how about you? How, how are you? How's your lockdown hand? How you know, are you up? It's 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 amazing you say something about a haircut. I actually have a haircut scheduled for Thursday, and I am looking forward to it to no end because it has just been <laughs> my whole rhythm of uh, haircuts has been thrown off. So um, I I am so excited to finally get a regular haircut. You know, I I'm with you there. I I'm I'm one of those every two weeks guys like on the nose, and that uh, without that I I feel feel kind of shaggy. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it's amazing because haircuts kind of gave you a sense of purpose in life. Like, it, <laughs> you know, it was like uh, this, you know, my whole month is scheduled around a haircut. So uh, I'm looking forward to the, the smallest semblance of life coming back, even if that means just getting a haircut. Oh, it's so mundane, but so important. Yeah. I, I would never want to shave my own. I would never want to give myself my own haircut. I just, that, I'm sure I'm capable. I, I wouldn't enjoy it. Yeah, I tried that in July and I regretted everything. So I've just kind of <laughs> let it grow and I'm leaving it to the professionals because that is what they do and that's what they should be doing. So we're not doing that again. <laughs> I guess that's why we get professionals. That's the whole point of getting a professional is to do something that they're good at and then have them specialize in what they do. Absolutely. Absolutely. So the first time I stumbled across you was during the 30 under 30 for live design. Congratulations. That was uh, quite a momentous achievement to be so young and be recognized so quickly. And then uh, a lot of people have been following you uh, since then without getting into too much about the article or the, the light talk is that, you know, as things do, they get edited and you were not able to talk about some of the, the most influential people in your life. Absolutely. And it, it was a little bit of a situation of the the podcast had a theme and I was trying to hit all the major points of that theme. But in that, we started to, to really scratch the surface of why uh, I felt or why uh, certain publications felt that my career had become a success up to that point. And I really wanted to get into why or how the educators in my life have really inspired me and kind of crafted me or like you said so beautifully earlier molded me into the designer I am today and unfortunately it didn't completely fit into the uh the structure of the the conversation or the interview and it, a lot of it got edited out so I felt like at least when I posted it on uh, social media for everyone else to read I wanted them to know that hey these people were involved uh, I wish you could have heard all the amazing things we said but just know we still see you and we still thank you (laughs) (laughs) man that's one of those things that we all kind of have in our in the back of our heads where we're going to get some uh, award and we're going to have the the wherewithal and self-awareness to be able to remember all the names of all the teachers and all the influencers that have helped us and it it just it, it never really comes up quite that way Right. Absolutely. You know, and it's funny when I was thinking about uh, who all I wanted to speak about today, um, their names just kind of came to mind so quickly and vividly because I have so many stories and experiences with them. But then I went, who was my seventh grade math teacher? Like, I can't remember their name to save my life. I couldn't tell you if they're a male or a female. I couldn't tell you how old they were. I just don't remember so many of these other people, but I remember all of my, you know, theater educators and all of my drama teachers, because they are just one, they're probably all such amazing characters, but two, they've been so influential and really just wonderful storytellers and educators. Oh man, that rings true for me too. Because even in high school, my math teacher, you spend 40 minutes with them and then you're gone as quick as you can. Mm -hmm. And then I would I got into theater because theater was what got me out of my other classes to go to the theater. And next thing you know, you're, you're at your own school until nine, 10 PM. You know, I had never gotten in trouble for uh, breaking curfew until I got into theater. And then the first time I broke curfew was because 
I was at theater doing hang and focus until 10 PM. And my dad didn't, it took him a little while. He's like, what are you talking about? You were at school until 10 PM. Are you insane? Do you think I'm going to believe you? Right. And, and it's, what's even more amazing is that like up until a certain point of your life, spending time at school is almost like a punishment. <laughs> I mean, you get to socialize with your friends <laughs> and you really get to, you know, have a great time, like maybe an art class or maybe you really like English or there's a subject that speaks to you. But for the most part, going to school felt like a chore. Um, and I, you know, when I was in second grade, I used to equate going to school, something like going to prison because I was a really dramatic child, of course. And um, <laughs> I used to look at it as we were in a child prison. All I wanted to do was play with my friends all day. What I then discovered is th theater or extracurricular activities often give uh, students and young people a, a sense of place, a sense of purpose, and then they want to participate. And then you start kind of, you know, turning it down from, oh, maybe this isn't a child prison. Maybe this is a place for me to go and grow and explore. And then that's how you end up staying in the theater till 10 p.m. I'm, I mean, I remember whenever uh, I was in high school, I became a auditorium technician, which meant that any event that happened in the auditorium, they needed like a liaison from the theater department there just to make sure the lights turned on, the drops worked and all that stuff. And with that came the responsibility of keys. And I feel like every young you know, theater practitioner has a set of keys to a theater, they feel like they've made it, you know, up at that point, I was like, my life is a success, I can retire now, because I had the keys to the theater. And I was, you know, 17 years old in high school. And it was like, the coolest thing to have the responsibility of the theater and want to be in the theater all the time. I can't imagine your math teacher giving you the keys to anything. The key to knowledge is what she gave me. <laughs> Doesn't uh, doesn't carry the same weight walking through the hallway. You got this big old no. keychain with with a bunch of different little color codes. Like this mm -hmm. one's for the this one's for the the tech room. This mm -hmm. one's uh, this one will get you into the theater. This one will get you into the paint cabinet. That's right. that's some clout right there. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and uh not to harp on the keys too much, but you know, uh, becoming a designer has been such a different experience than being in high school and becoming a technician. Because in high school, you wanted the responsibility of the theater. And I found as a designer, I want nothing to do with those keys because I don't want to be the one unlocking the door at 6 a.m. <laughs> so the paint notes can happen. So I am totally fine with rolling in right before notes, you know, doing focus notes and going home and taking a nap. That is A-OK -okay by me. Yeah, you've done the full arch there. The the the, <laughs> yeah. the the joy of getting the keys and the joy of getting rid of the keys. Yes, yes, yeah. not my responsibility anymore. <laughs> I can see your teacher going like, "Watch this! I'm going to give the keys to the 17 year old kid and see what happens." Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. You know, in high school, it was if you lose these keys, you you essentially lose your job, and you have to pay a hundred dollar a key to get the district to come do it. As an adult, I feel like the keys become uh, an extra layer of responsibility. And we already have so many responsibilities that I just do not need <laughs> the, uh, the stress of potentially losing a key. Good for you. Congratulations on not losing <laughs> the keys. Thank you. So, Thank so you. let's start from the beginning. You started in, uh, let's start with your parents. Did your parents have any idea what theater was or were they, uh, did they encourage you to get into theater or was, so, did you surprise them with that? Theater specifically, I mean, they, they, uh, 
to start from the beginning, I'm from New Orleans, Louisiana, which is probably one of the most uh, colorful cities in, in America. And there's so much music and jazz and literature and um, lots of uh, just performance experiences that aren't necessarily theater. Um, New Orleans only has one touring house that they have shows come through, which is not uncommon for a mid-sized city. And they only really have one or two theaters that have really only come about in the last 30 years. So uh, as a young child, I wasn't really exposed to a lot of theater, but like my father was a drummer and was a part of the band for his entire uh, grade school experience. And my mother was a dancer with the, the, the like, I guess in Texas, we'd call them a drill team or the dance squad that got with the football games. So in, in a sense, they were both uh, kind of performative people, but they were not necessarily performance in the sense of going into a theater and creating a performance. And one of my first experiences that I actually remember a peek into the world of theater is my parents had rented the VHS of Moulin Rouge, which I believe is rated R. So they told me, you can't watch this, go up to your room uh, and um, we'll let you know when we're done watching this movie. But what they didn't realize is that anytime they tell me to go up to my room, I would just go up to the second floor of my house, which had a balcony that looked over into the living room. So I, there I was, I had to be five or six, looking through the little slats on the balcony down at Moulin Rouge, thinking that was just like the most awesome experience I had ever seen. You know, in Moulin Rouge, they had theatrical lighting with film lighting and, um, you know, Baz Luhrmann had such an eye for color. And that was kind of my first experience into theater, which was kind of uh, secondhand through my parents watching a kind of theatrical experience. Right on. So they weren't... They weren't completely ignorant that this was something that existed. Like they knew stage people. They knew that lighting happened by a person. They knew that lights had to be hung. So they weren't, they weren't blindsided. No, 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 no. And they, and they knew there was a world of artists. They, they might not have known to what degree, but you know, uh, they were familiar with going to concerts and that uh, part of what you're paying for when you buy a ticket is the concert experience, which is everything from, front of house to you know the designers who put it together so they did have a clue uh for sure all right so now you're in school uh math and english are enough to keep you at school but not enough to really forge your your career or any sort of inspiration to take a path to towards a job or anything when's the first time you discovered theater real theater so when I was 10 or 11 years old, my brother was going on a date and he could drive because he was 15, 16. And he would just run out of the house and be like, I'm going to see a show or I'm going to a football game or a basketball game. And on his way out the door, my mother would go, you got to take your brother with you because the perk of being a younger brother is that you get to kind of be a side piece to your older sibling, whether or not they want you to. Um, so that was a part of my uh, getting out of the house. So I didn't really know where we were headed. I knew we were headed to the local high school. Um, I didn't know what we were seeing, but my brother's like, we're going to see a play. And we pull up to the parking lot and we get to a ticket booth. And this is my first time ever going to a ticket booth, a little window in the wall with a little hole in the middle. And they gave us our tickets. And my brother goes, this is your seat. Now go sit over there and don't say anything. He just wanted to be on this date with this girl. And I sit down and this is the first time I ever had a ticket with a row and a seat number and something about that 
was so exciting because it felt like I was a VIP member going to the Royal Opera House, though it was, you know, essentially a community theater. And I sit down in my seat in my row and I feel so important and everyone else is, you know, even though this is you know, 20 years ago, people still kind of dressed up to go see shows, especially in places like Louisiana and Texas, where they think going to the theater is like going to the Grand Ball. So everyone had, you know, their polos and their ties and all these parents of these, you know, students there. And we sit down and the overture starts and the grand drape goes up and it is, lo and behold, The Little Shop of Horrors, which is one of the, I think, greatest musicals of all time. And it was my first experience sitting in the theater and seeing Little Shop, even though it was a high school production. It was still amazing to hear the music of Alan Menken to kind of see all the nods to the Frank Oz film. And, you know, Alan Menken and Frank Oz are like my childhood because I grew up in the Disney Renaissance and all of those movies were uh, Alan Menken productions. And my parents were, uh, they wouldn't say they love it, but my brother and I love it. They showed us all the Muppet films. So Frank Oz was very instrumental in the Muppets and creating, you know, famous characters like Yoda. And so Little Shop, I feel like it was just meant to be that that was my first experience. And, you know, something that really... I think fascinated me was the breath and the heat coming off the stage. Like the, you know, it was all Lico's and Fresnel's and there was just the amount of energy, quite literal light energy that came off the stage, feeling the room heat up because all the stage lights were on was kind of my first inkling into there is something far more exciting going on than just the dancers on stage. Like there is a presence of something. And I didn't know at the time that those were, you know, the directors and the choreographers and the designers. I just knew that there was some, some force beyond what I was looking at that designed this thing. And that really jazzed me. And that was, you know, my first, first production I ever saw. Right on. Uh, that's a tough one to put on, especially in, uh, in high school. I mean, Audrey is not an easy prop or Audrey 2 no. is not an easy prop to do for high no. school. And you should have seen my mouth when at the end they came out and I found out there was a puppeteer that was different than the person voicing and singing it. I, it was just my jaw was on the floor. I could not fathom how someone moved the puppet and someone else sang off stage and they made it work seamlessly. And I'm sure it wasn't perfect. But to me, that was like the most perfect piece of anything I had ever seen in my life. That is cool. That's a... That's, uh... That's a very inspirational one. It's a, it's a good way to start. Yeah. In Louisiana, did you have to seek for a theatrical school to go to, or was it just part of the curriculum then? I guess I have to like fill in some, this always confuses everyone when I do these situations. So in going between elementary school and middle school, I transferred from out of Louisiana into Dallas, Texas. And yeah. uh, just to give everyone a kind of uh, timeline in their mind, we happened to move like a year and a half right before Hurricane Katrina. So it was literally just luck that something told my father he needed to go get this new job in Dallas, Texas. And that's where I then kind of started a uh, 2.0 theatrical experience. And just to give background into how theater in Louisiana works, there is a very specific magnet school called NOCA that uh, actually a cousin of mine who's now a performer in New York uh, went to and I just knew I was going to go to NOCA because NOCA is where the lighting designers that come out of New Orleans go and I it stands for like uh, New Orleans Academy of the Creative Arts or something like that. And so 
everything kind of changed and not to get too into the weeds of the boring things, but education is paid for by property tax and not necessarily a tax on like your uh, W-2. Texas has a lot of small mansions apparently in North Texas. So a lot of these these school districts in, in North Texas are absolutely massive and have so much money. Being in Texas, the fine arts are a little more interwound into the overall school experience. So um, now that I, uh, let's say now that Little Shops happened, I've moved to, to Dallas, Texas. I'm in my English class and lo and behold, my first drama teacher is actually my English teacher. So uh, Miss Rayanne Cox at Creek Valley Middle School was the cheerleading coach. She was the drama teacher. She was the English teacher and she was the speech and debate teacher. So she did everything that was kind of theatrical <laughs> at this middle school program. I don't know how she pulled it off, but she was the first person that was like, hey, English class, I also run the drama club. If you're interested, please show up at this date and time and see what it's all about. So that was kind of my first really offer to join theater. Wow. Ms. Ray Ann Cox <laughs> is like teacher extraordinaire, everything based on getting the message out and telling stories is basically her, her whole vibe. Yeah. Her whole vibe to this day. It's not the same. Um, she still teaches at Creek Valley, but uh, the school was brand new when I moved there because we, we essentially lived on a cattle farm. No, not all of Texas is that country. Yes. Most of it is. You know, what was amazing about Miss Cox is because she ran so many different uh, arts or speech programs, she kind of didn't have the time for a lot of unnecessary foolishness. So she was kind of the first person that gave me the idea that theater people are very uh, on top of their stuff. You know, you always show up on time. You're always uh, prepared. And so... Whether or not, I mean, that is true of the industry, whether or not that is the message she wanted to pass on, I'm not sure. But uh, three years ago was the first time she ever made it to New York City in her entire career. Uh, she she is in her, you know, uh, I think she's in her late 50s, not to give her age away, but it was her first time in her 30 years of teaching that she had been to New York City and seen a Broadway show. And I remember being in middle school, looking at her as the director of all these productions as the, I mean, essentially she was also the co-designer of all these productions with me, thinking that she was at that time in my bubble and in my world, the one of the greatest directors ever to grace the earth, right? Because when you're in middle school and you don't know anyone who's actually in the industry, you think you look at, you know, your peers and your educators as they are the Mecca at that time and you want to learn everything. And since she knew the most about theater out of anyone I'd ever known, I just knew she was the, the greatest theater practitioner to ever grace this earth. And she might still be at Creek Valley Middle School. So it was just amazing to me to then see her, you know, three years ago, which was almost 20 years later in New York for the first time, seeing her first Broadway show, and then being there with one of her fellow students that she had inspired to go on and live in New York. So it was really exciting. Oh, that's so much better than uh, taking her to go see the the Empire State Building or the uh, the Statue of Liberty or something. That, that really means something. Yeah, the Statue of Liberty and Empire State Building, they'll be here for years yeah. to come. But Broadway shows, the magic of theaters, everything's so temporary that you have to go see it in that time on that night and that day, you know. 
Yeah. Normally when uh, people come visit you in New York city, you can be fairly hands off. You can be like, yeah, it's New York city. You just go do anything. There's so much to do, but uh, so that, that sounds really special. I'm maybe I'm going to be a little overly stereotypical here, but I have this idea <laughs> of a married her high school sweetheart. She was a teacher. She, she was the sort of woman who just spent all of her time at school, just doing everything she can I would imagine she used the term like "bless your heart" all the time. All the am time. I, am I am I painting the right picture here? That is that is Miss Rayanne Cox. That is her, and she's always lived in North Texas her entire life, and uh, she is the ultimate, you know, theater geek, right? Like the the one who loved it when she was in high school, that loved Shakespeare, and that all she wanted to do was spread her energy and love of theater to anyone who would listen, and and that's what she did, and she was so good at. At it and she presented us with scripts and stories and concepts that I think not many uh, junior high students have ever been presented and I think that's so important that we offer these you know these moments and you know you can ask most people who have a career in theater who work in any sector of the theater when they started to really fall in love with it and most of them were between the ages of 11 and 15 usually in junior high school and that's when they have their first experience of going to the ballet or going to see a live performance and that's kind of what inspires them for the rest of their lives honestly yeah i i could share a very similar story in Texas, you would have moved from a junior high school to a high school then, right? So you'd had to left That's left right. her behind after, what, two years, three years? Three years. Three, three years, years? yes. Mm-hmm. So now you're on to high school. Now I'm on to high school. You know, it's funny. I showed up to high school and I was immediately intimidated by everyone, right? Because, in, in, you know, you go from like eighth grade or whatever your, your highest junior high grade is and you think you rule the world, right? You're a big fish in a small pond and then you go immediately to being a tiny fish in a really big pond. And so I showed up, you know, I, I took uh, all of the theater classes they could offer and it starts with like theater one and technical theater one. And they had these seniors that were designing all the scenery and the lights. And uh, when you're in high school, the difference between a freshman and a senior is like the difference between a child and an adult, even though high school seniors really are like children. But when you're yes. a child, it feels like they're the adults. And so I showed up to one of their meetings. We were doing Honk the Musical, uh, the Ugly Duckling story. And all these seniors with their this is when like the goth emo thing was still going. So all the techies were still very uh, emo and goth phased. And I, I like to like, believe that's still the case. I, I, I they probably are. I haven't been to a high school in a long time, but I Me imagine neither. they are. <laughs> but um, uh, I guess I could look at uh, the different roadies I've met over my time. And they do kind of all still have that kind of grungy feeling, which is exciting. Now I sound so New York. It's not even funny, but um <laughs> <laughs> um, so I got to high school and I was really intimidated by these these older uh, students. And so I did not want to participate because I f did not feel safe. I did not feel like they were my friends yet. But I was actually approached by Miss uh, Kimberly Mon Powell, uh, Miss Powell, Mama P, as we called her affectionately. And she was just this wonderful, extremely char uh, charming um, Southern Belle, if you will, that came forward is like, I see you like to draw. How would you like to draw specifically 
a piece of scenery. And I was like, I don't know what that means. And we were, you know, at that time we were working on the music man and she was like, imagine a small town and there's like a fountain in the middle and there's this, that, and the other, and there's a pool shop. And she just kind of described step-by-step, almost like holding my hand, but not really what it could look like. And I'd go, oh, but wait, what if there was this? Oh, wait, what was that? And I remember very vividly at the end of that day, I had completed my first scenic design. Like every piece of scenery was drawn. It might've been crude. It might've not been the most aesthetically pleasing looking set, but that was my first scenic design. And it's because Miss Powell sat down and she would just walked me through each step. And that's actually what I needed was someone to sit down and talk me through the process. And it's really hard because I feel like a lot of uh, other emerging designers and, and young folk come up to me and they're like, how did you learn this? Or how did you learn that? Or how did you know that this should all be all that? You know, it's moments like that, people like Mama P sitting down and, and taking you through it. And oftentimes that energy is not necessarily injected into a curriculum, you know, because this was after school one day and we we're just sitting in the drama room. That is the energy that comes from just quite honestly, the love of theater and wanting to impart your wisdom on someone else. And she wanted me to want to be a part of this program. So she sat down and said, okay, I know you're uncomfortable with these big, scary seniors, but this is what we're doing. We're doing this. We're making this art. We're not, you know, heckling the, the freshmen in the locker room, you know. <laughs> that is so traditionally non-traditional of the theater arts, too. Like mm -hmm. we don't care about the seniority or the you know the hierarchy here. Like this kid knows how to how to draw. Let's let's get him motivated. Let's get him inspired. Let's let's show. Right. Let's see what he can do. Right. Absolutely. And that actually started you know the next four years of high school because this is freshman going into sophomore year. I was predominantly a scenic designer. I drew all day. Like drawing is how I knew to communicate with others. So that was the skill I used. Not until a certain point much later in my high school career did I discover the power of lighting as a communication device, which is a lot to digest, but people seem to figure it out. <laughs> Mama P. Mama P. That's right. How many hours a, a week would you spend in the theater at this as a, as a high school student? You know, uh, easily, yeah, well, we we had the class, which was like an hour. And then we had the after, I mean, it felt like 20 hours a week. It was like a small job. It was like a it small part-time job. Yeah. You know? uh, like you said, with having the keys, uh, that was when I recall my high school theater, like I, I wanted to be there. And, uh, you, you know, it was just every new task was a new badge of honor because you were just increasing responsibility and then next thing you know the teacher was just gone and basically the inmates were just running the asylum there we were just like hey there's there's nobody here it's just us and we're still doing projects on our own right right and it's so funny because as theater folks, or I, I keep calling ourselves theater practitioners, which sounds so ridiculous, but it's what we do. We practice yeah. the theater. We work so hard on all these shows and we, we personally build all the scenery and we hang on the lights and we do tech. And it's like you and your four best friends. And then you go to present the show to the school and maybe 200 people show up. You know what I mean? Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not like a lot of people supported it because uh, especially in Texas on Friday nights, we had these massive football games where thousands and thousands of screaming fans would show up. 
And then we'd be like, well, we have a musical right after. And like maybe 150 people would walk from the stadium to the theater and watch the show. Right. And it's you don't do theater because you want people to necessarily see your work. Right. Like, I feel like so many of us do theater for the thing that's inside of us and inspiring the select few others, not for, oh, I want to be a lighting designer because I want to be famous like a quarterback. Right. Like that is not why we do this. (laughs) Man, that's some tough competition in Texas. It's it's really tough to compete with high school football. Right. Oh, there is you almost can't. And and no. part of the gimmicks was casting the football players in the musicals, right? Cuz that's how we would get the excitement and the buzz around school. Oh, I heard Jay is now in the musical. You know what I mean? That's that was part of our marketing tactic. Hey, that's clever. If that works, that's what we got to do. It's what you got to do. So did you end up doing four years of scenic design in high school? I did four whole years of scenic design, which is funny because when I actually applied for college, I applied predominantly as a scenic designer that had one or two lighting designs in the back of my portfolio. And um, actually, uh, the next person I was going to talk about, Mr. Dusty Thompson, who was the head of the theater program, uh, worked with Mama P, if you will. Dusty was really good. It's funny, I call him Dusty because the older you get in high school, the more comfortable you get with your professors and mentors or your teachers, excuse me, professors. And then you start calling them your first name because, you know, Dusty was only maybe six years older than we were in school. What was so special about Dusty is that he was an ensemble member in the original Broadway production of Hairspray. So, right, I was talking about how like my bubble and who was the most famous person I knew in the theater started with Miss Cox, right? Because Miss Cox was teaching theater for, at the time, uh, 15 years and had done, directed all these shows. And then Miss Powell had been in productions regionally and designed all over, you know, the state of Texas. And then Dusty was a Broadway, I'm not going to call him a star, but he was on Broadway. And I thought that was the coolest thing ever. And what he brought was the energy of, how to be a professional artist, how to kind of brand and market yourself, right? Because Dusty was the one who was like, we got to get you a portfolio. We got to get you meetings with universities. I had no real concept that I really wanted to do this for a living uh, until Dusty was like, you can do this for a living. You know, the people who designed The Lion King and Hairspray, you know, they have degrees. They went to school. Some of them even have masters to do this. And they do this full time year round and they pay for... Uh, he even said something like they pay for two and three mortgages on homes. Right. And I'm like, what? That's mind blowing. And so that was the first time I was interested because he had that, that New York flair to him. That was, this is how you make it as an artist. And I've made it as an artist. Now this is your chance to go be an artist. And that's, that's what was my big takeaway from dusty, you know? Oh, that's what the teaching profession needs too. It needs, a healthy amount of people who have made it. And for some reason, they still have the drive and the motivation. And just maybe it's the masochism to come back to high school theater and, and, and impart their knowledge and still convince the next generation. No, I've been there. It's awesome. You have to go see it too. You know, there's, I know that in the in, there are some teachers out there that they get right out of, they go from high school to college right into teaching. Mm-hmm. And that, 
there's mm-hmm. there's a lot to be said for that, but it's not nearly at the same level. You're not going to get the same results there. You, you right. really need the people who have seen the world and the benefits and the and the two and three mortgages that the entertainment industry can afford us. Right. No disrespect to anyone out there listening that has had this experience that I'm about to to describe. And I I do not mean any harm to anyone, but like the assembly line teacher, right? That just goes through the emotions of the like educational assembly line comes out and then teaches what was fed to them. You're going to miss the, the opportunity to really impart some knowledge to people, right? Like, sure, we've all learned from the same textbook written in 1969. But if you go out and have, even if your career is five, 10 years or less, uh, you're going to be able to come back and speak firsthand on these things, because you can always tell when a teacher has truly experienced these things versus when they are just kind of like, oh, I went to school and I figured it out. And it's the same way I feel about people who are questioning whether or not they should go to grad school. Grad school is not the answer for, I'm not sure what I want to do when I graduate in May. Grad school is the answer for, I've been doing this for 5, 10, 15 years, and I would like to go back and sharpen up, polish, or learn a skill that I feel like I've been missing for the last 15 years of my career, right? I think going to grad school just to solely teach, you're kind of missing an opportunity to really take your student's educational level to the next level, right? Because if you're only doing it just to teach, well, your students are kind of, they're going to miss what the industry has been up to for the last 10 years. And this is the industry you want to prepare them for, you know? So, you know, that's why I think research institutions are really great because it is a requirement that your professors are working professionally, right? Like my undergrad, it was a requirement that X amount of professors were a part of USA 829 or IATSE or whatever it may be so they can, you know, impart what the industry is up to. Yeah. Next thing you know, uh, the teachers are going to come back and they're going to be like, no, I I promise a source for Lika or a, a six by nine ellipsoidal is still the industry standard because the textbook says so. And you're like, I don't know if you've been keeping up with the technology of this ever changing industry, because that's, that's not true. Six by nines are, you know, they're, they're just not a workhorse anymore. No, it's, it's funny. I was telling just a short story into this. The other day I was talking with another group of, of lighting designers and we were talking about how producers will look at the stage And you'll say, oh, I need X amount of money so I can get this amazing rental or I can do this thing that will elevate the show. And then they look at you and go, well, we have 35 six by nines under the seating riser. And I'm like, a six by nine is not going to do the same thing as, say, like a GLP X4 bar. And they just don't understand (laughs) why you would potentially need this new technology to support the show, which sure, I'm sure there is some crazy way you could get you know, a hundred six by nines to do something really awesome and really innovative, but it's not necessarily what every production needs, you know? Yeah. Our industry has changed so much that we really need those people that have been on Broadway to come back and say, no, no, we, we can't, we're not going to get any bigger shows or any more ticket sales or any revenue. If we keep rehashing the same old, same old thing, we can't just put up a wash anymore. We're, you know, we're not going to compete with 
with football with uh right. six by nines right and and in a weird way i know people believe this doesn't work but i think our industry is small enough that it works in a weird way it's going to have a trickle-up effect because currently the the standard for everything on broadway is kind of based on the designs of like you know Jules Fisher and Ken Billington. And so if you need anything that's different from the standards that we have kind of set on Broadway, the producers are like, why would you do that? We've been doing this for 20, 30 years and it works great. But what they're going to find is the new generation of designers. Like I, I very rarely hang a plot that's like box booms, top light, top, you know what I mean? It's always a little askewed in a way that makes mm -hmm. it very specific per show. So like if I were to, to transfer one of my shows, it's not going to be the same budgetary situation as a, a traditional Ken Billington show. It could be smaller. It could be larger. I don't know. I have not budgeted anything out at a Broadway scale, but it's, it's important that like we understand that it all might change and the way we're looking at budgeting these things, it's going to change and it could change over a course of a year or 10 years, who knows, but it's going to. <laughs> That is a very interesting tangent I think is worth talking about here is that you can't break the rules justifiably if you don't know the rules. If you don't go right. to school to learn the Jules Fisher and the Ken Billington and the Jeff Ravitz ways, you can't, you can't convince anybody why you're breaking those rules to be unconventional. You know, otherwise you're just being sloppy. You're like, Oh, I'm going to hang this here and this here and this here. Like, why are you doing it? I'm doing it because Jeff Rabbits didn't do it. Right. You no. Know? And right. I'm not doing it to, to spite him, but I'm doing it because everybody's seen a Jeff Rabbits. Everybody's seen a Ken Billing. Everybody's seen a Jules Fisher. I need to set myself apart from that. And you can only learn that in school. Only you know? learn it in school. Only. And, you know, the, the vacuum of school at least the way I learned it from people who learned it from everyone else who's been learning it for the last 50 years is we're all working towards a perfect show. And quite honestly, there is no such thing as a perfect show, but every textbook will tell you, this is what you need to be a successful lighting designer. And I always looked at those textbooks and I'm like, why? Why do you need that? Is that because this is the most commercial thing? And should we weigh success on your commercialness or your design you know, merit? So it's, it's really interesting to see how how certain people measure success. Maybe it's how many mortgages you have. Honestly, I don't know. Depends on each person. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So moving on from Dusty, now we get to our next teacher. Well, let me, I'll let you introduce the next yeah. teacher. Fortunately, unfortunately, Mama P moved on to a new high school, a new job. And we had the lovely, even younger than Dusty, Mr. Cade Butler, who was a, a, a amazingly hardworking teacher. This was really his first full teaching position because prior to this, he did one of those like half semesters as an assistant teacher somewhere. And so this was his first real opportunity to be a capital T theater director, you know, drama teacher. And what was so wonderful about, I almost said working with Cade Butler, but I guess... I guess it was like working with him. It I was feels like learning, it but it feels acceptable. like at that point, because this is my senior year, my junior going into senior year, working with him was that he was so fresh out of school that he had 10,001 ideas all the time, right? Like he hadn't been around long enough to get jaded by anything. He was like 
we're going to create collegiate level theater at a high school. And, you know, he was just so excited. I think he was like 22 years old when he started teaching and I, I was 18. So it felt like he was my older brother. And what was amazing about Cade is that he would sit down before every production meeting and we almost, and I hated it at the time, but I really appreciate him for this. We would have full on dramaturgy conversations about the script, about the design, about how the actors are gonna move about the space. And that was the first time I had ever sat down and had the experience of dramaturgy, of, of actively thinking about theater in a way that my brain had only worked in classes like mathematics or English or science, right? Like it was really churning my mind. And so he really gave me, I'd say the skills to start having the conversations at like the university level the next year, right? Because it's not until most people get to college do they start writing a design concept or start really having mood boards. So I think uh, Cade's excitement to want to produce really good, well thought out theater, really uh, jazz something in my mind that was, how do we think about this beyond the lights, beyond the scenery, right? Like, what does this mean to the person sitting in the seat? So it really felt like a very mature conversation to be having with high schoolers, but high schoolers are willing to have those conversations, you know? No, oh, it's because the high schoolers think they think they know everything, or at least I, I know when I was in high school, I was like, well, clearly I know everything. I, I, I have the know. keys. I have the keys of knowledge. <laughs> what else do I need? Right. I got this all figured out. All oh. figured out. But what you're talking about is such an important skill that gets overlooked sometimes. We all have crazy ideas. They come to us in the shower or you know, right before we go to bed, mm -hmm. and then we got to scribble them down. And some of them are the best ideas in the world. But man, if we can't describe them or if we can't convince other people that that is the best idea, if we don't mm -hmm. have the right words or the tools or the, the know-how to convince other people that we are right and that our ideas aren't insane, mm -hmm. they will <laughs> never come to fruition. It's so true. It's so true. And, you know, I think honestly, some of my favorite projects are when it's pitched to me and it sounds absolutely insane. And I go, no way could we pull that off. Yes, I'm on board. <laughs> <laughs> if you want You're to see insane. it happen. You're insane. Let's do it. Yes. That's, I mean, that's, that's the entertainment industry altogether. I feel like. <laughs> that, that can only come from a younger teacher who hasn't been kicked, kicked to the curb too many, enough times, you know, that, they haven't had to fill out enough TPS reports or whatever that is that they have to do. They're just like, no, we're going to make this happen. We're going to find some money. We're going to get the, the community to be involved. They're going to give us donations. Oh, yeah. Do a bake sale, whatever it has oh, to do, yeah. whatever we have to do. Oh, yeah. yes, it is. You know, <laughs> and he really pushed us to the limits because we would have. I, some of the largest sets the school had ever seen in its history. So we, we he really wanted us to feel like we were producing. Like, I, I think he was on a mission to turn that high school into a regional house. But, um, you know, we got as close as we could. <laughs> all right. So sadly, uh, as uh, as happens, all of us, high school comes to an end and you have to move on to your next adventure. Where did you go from high school? 
my next adventure. So I somehow got my mother to fund a large, expensive portfolio. And I, I cannot imagine being a parent in my child saying, I need X amount of money to make this big hunk of paper that people are going to look at for a month. And then I probably will never use it again. And she said, okay, let's do it. Because I think uh, I was just so excited to be working on something. And since it was uh, academic related and educational related, she was like, we have to support this thing. So I put together this big portfolio. You know, Mr. Dusty Thompson was like, these are the schools that I've researched that are really big into theater design. And you know, what's funny is, is thinking back on this, this is a small tangent. But even when I was graduating from high school, Google was not a very good resource. So like when I was graduating, you couldn't just go top theater design programs and Google would, would not know what to do with that. So it was actually a process of Dusty and I sitting down and making phone calls and talking to people at actual you know, help desk and looking through catalogs. And there's actually something about that process of you have to kind of decide and put the effort into going to school that I feel like is a little lost in today's being like, you know, we have all these slick blogs that are like, these are the top 10 best programs for musical theater. These are the top five, but you know what I mean? And you're just like, mm -hmm. I'm going to apply to this, but sitting down and looking through these catalogs is actually really how I found the university I'd eventually go to because they sent me this thing in the mail and it had all these pictures of these spaces and these, these performance spaces were not the top of the line, beautiful, all the walls are pristine and white. These spaces literally look like downtown New York theater. And that ignited everything in my, my like being. So I was like, I have to go visit that school because this looks really, you know, village is what I was thinking, but I didn't know that at the time and really cool. And like some really artsy, cool stuff is going to come out of this. So I, I, you know, I walk into the theater for the first time and it was this big old uh, proscenium house that was built in like the late 40s, early 50s. It smelled like mothballs. There was leaks everywhere. The back wall had been painted 27 times. And I was like, this is it. I have to go here because all the other programs had these beautiful brand new spaces that had either been renovated or had been painted over so many times. It had lost the spirit of wonder and adventure. And it was actually on that trip that I was visiting the University of Oklahoma that I met Stephen A. Draheim, who was at the time the associate professor of lighting design. And I sat down and I showed him my portfolio and he pointed out something that uh, even to this day, I probably do when I'm describing my work. Uh, as I was talking about my scenic designs and the handful of lighting designs I had, I never once spoke about the technicality of the designs. I never said I used this instrument. I never said it was a, a Lico with 36 degrees. I never said we use these American DJ footlights. I just said, and you know, I would describe the emotion, the tone, the story as if I were presenting to a director. And he was like, that energy of describing your work metaphorically or through story and, and through the language I was using, he said aligned with a lighting designer. And I was like, come again. And he was like, well, lighting designers often talk in the abstract about our work. And then like, that's when my like, poof, my head exploded. Cause it's like, oh, lighting designers talk in the abstract about their work. He's like, yeah, cause we don't actually get to show our work until we really get to tech. And so I sat on that. And they offered me, you know, to go to the school with a scholarship for scenic and lighting if I would like. And I was like, let me think on this for a little bit. 
And when I wrote back to them, uh, I said, I would like to go and I would like to go as a lighting student. So that was like, really that meeting was the, the moment I went from being just like a high school techie to being a lighting designer. Cause it just all kind of made sense in that moment. Steve unfortunately passed away of cancer two and a half years later. So uh, often I like to use a quote he gave us, which was one of the last quotes he gave, which was, let's create theater that matters. Because at the end of his life, all he wanted to do was talk about the theater that really mattered. And that was such a beautiful thing that he can impart on all of us. But he really gave me like the next step up of what is lighting design, which was wonderful. That is awesome. That is... Uh... So a lot of you in podcast land, you can't see that Adam is actually uh, miming, flipping over a portfolio with his hands <laughs> up over his head because that's what the portfolios used to be. We used to have to yes, like carry them massive. around and they, they were, they were actually like a, basically an easel that you would fold up and you would put in it in a, in a large bound folder with a zipper. And you carried that from place mm -hmm. to place to show off your work do those exist anymore you know it's funny i i i do go to the uh the hemsley portfolio review every year just to see who's who's next and often they will have a version of them but i actually hadn't seen a massive portfolio in the sense of what a portfolio used to be in a long time. And I'm sure there's some grad programs listening are like, we still do portfolios, but yet at this time they're like 11 by 17. They're so slick and small. And most of the time they're filled with QR codes because they want you to go to a website. So right. the sense of like really a tangible portfolio, I would be really thrilled to see one, but I totally understand, you know, the photos have to get printed right. And you have to think about it like kind of like a scrapbook. But I, yeah, it'd be really jazzing to see one. <laughs> I think that we have progressed beyond them. I don't think we're going to see them out of a sense for nostalgia anymore. I think, I think a lot of the process that you just rehashed, they might be lost to history. The, 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 the brochures and the, the, them scouting you and they were, the necessity of you going to visit that you can get such a sense through a website now. And it's not, it's not the real thing. I mean, you're not going to get the photos, but man, if you can't fly there, if you don't have the funds to fly and spend a week and, and meet all the people, man, there's so you can get so much information now. And, and what I think is so important as someone who's now on the other side, small tangent of, of kind of being a part of university programs and helping them build their programs and, and figure out what students they'd like to accept, so much more than a portfolio or a website is meeting the student and meeting their personality and seeing how they're going to work with the other potential students or how they talk about their work in, in, in real life. Because I totally understand the necessity, like uh, what I'm on a scholarship committee or something of them being able to write what they're saying or have an essay or, you know, have a beautiful website. But what's so important is hearing someone speak about their work in person, because that mm -hmm. tells you what type of designer they are, what type of human they are, and whether or not you, they really fit in that program. Because you could have the world's greatest website, but if you are just a frozen popsicle in tech or with the director, you know, then it's not going to fly too well. Absolutely. 
That's a great point. Yeah, I, I would hope that that's the part that we don't ever lose is that uh, that human interaction, the the necessity to meet somebody in person, shake hands, fist bump, whatever. It, even if we got to wear a mask these days, whatever it takes right. to just go and right. meet face to face one way or another. I mean, Zoom calls are great, but it's not the same. It's it's definitely no. just not the same. So, no. so that was Stephen Draheim. Sorry for your loss. I, that, that's uh, terrible. And he was at the University of Oklahoma. Yep, 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 yep. And and kind of segueing right right to another uh, amazing professor at the University of Oklahoma is John Young, who was the now associate professor of design, but at the time he was an assistant professor of scenic design. And it's actually amazing because when I was in school, John was a relatively young designer and he, not dissimilar from Cade, had a lot of really great ideas. And he was was just a couple of years out of grad school, I'd say five or so years out of grad school. So he had been working professionally all over the Midwest, everywhere from Houston up through Kansas City. And he just had a really, really cool aura about himself. You know, when people meet him in person, he's just always really calm and collected. And uh, when I was in college, um, it's funny, uh, I'll tell that antidote when I get through the story. I, I was always a little high strung and nervous. And I was like, everything has to be perfect all the time. We're working towards perfection, like drafting this plot, you know, we have to redline it, you know, all day to hell and back. And we have to make sure that all the lights are extremely perfect. And I had a lot of anxiety of like just sitting in tech because I'm gonna be honest with you, lighting design is not for the weak of heart because we have to sit there and be vulnerable in front of everyone in the room. And we have to have days where we put extremely ugly cues on stage and we have to say, okay, we can come back to that later. Or, you know, and everyone's kind of waiting on us. Well, now they're waiting on projections, but um, everyone traditionally <laughs> has been waiting on us. And so that stress used to cause me to just have lots of chaotic energy all the time. And I can't tell if I've just calmed way down because I've, you know, been in New York for a number of years, or if that what used to be chaotic energy in Oklahoma just became a really calm energy in New York because everyone else has way more chaos going on all the time. Because New York is probably the crazy one of the craziest, most chaotic cities in the world. Um, and I think kind of the Southern boy in me saw how crazy everyone in New York was acting and was like, okay. I'm actually calm now. So John gave me a sense of it's going to be okay. And it's also okay if not every single thing you produce is just absolute perfection. You actually sometimes have to go through the really terrible ideas and looks to get to something that you might believe is, uh, he would say, most appropriate for the piece, or I'm going to say for the, the sake of this podcast, perfection with air quotes, just for anyone who cannot see my hands. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So you are you're still in Oklahoma at this time. Were they were they really still touching on the fundamentals of theater or were you starting to get some high tech stuff at the time? High tech. So uh, even by the time I was graduating, we had a uh, pretty much all Leco, you know, incandescent inventory, which is what we designed all our shows with. Uh, once a year, we may have had like 1998 studio spots and studio colors, which essentially put out no light at all. So we did not necessarily have 
access to the most amazing uh, resources, but we did have, you know, we had a lot of, you know, once a week we would go out on the internet and find through like PLSN or uh, LDI, like the most new cutting edge piece of technology. And we do like a show and tell. We would do that at like every Wednesday. So we did have an opportunity to use some of our more cutting edge technology, better Google, to go out into the world and look at what the rest of the industry is doing, which was helpful. But I would say most of our shows look like the equivalent of theater being produced in the 1980s and 90s. Got it. <laughs> right on. I, but those, so, like, like we've said, those are the fundamentals that we really do need. Absolutely. So at the end of this, did you, you finally have your degree? You have a bachelor's at the, at the end of, from U of O? The university, yeah, OU is what we call it. For OU, sure. I'm sorry. OU. Yeah, so I got my, my degree. Uh, one of the things OU was really good at is they would invite professional artists to come in and, and design shows or give talkbacks. So in my time, you know, we had like Paul Miller, who had like two shows on Broadway at that time. And we had Driscoll Otto, who was about to put a show in, you know, the Santa Fe Opera or uh, the Metropolitan Muse uh, Opera. And so um, I was uh, assigned to be an electrician slash assistant on a show under Driscoll, which was an opera. And I was a... Uh, I don't think I'm an amazing electrician, but I am very much in the mind of a designer who needs an electrician to get something done quickly. So when Driscoll would give notes like, oh, this, this, and this, uh, we're going to have to rehang or we're going to have to move this over there, you know, any basic note, I was always watching in tech. So when I would fulfill the note, I would go through and do a really nice rough focus for him, which I think... Uh, Looking back on it, that is a little cocky of myself to say, let me focus this light on behalf of the lighting designer without him being there. But it was at least close enough that Driscoll was like, I can see what you're doing there and I can see your thought process. Because I could totally see a kid coming up to me and be like, I'm going to focus this light and it being completely wrong. And I'm being like, this is so wrong. I would never focus a light like this. But something about Driscoll and I really worked. And he noticed that and he was like, I can tell that you don't want to be an electrician professionally. Like there's, you know, most people believe uh, that you graduate from undergrad. If you move to New York, you're going to be an electrician for 10 years and then you can start assisting and then you can start designing. And he looked at me and was like, that's just not, that's not going to be your situation because you're just not an electrician. And I was like, yeah, I'm not an electrician. He's like, so when you been graduate, telling everybody, <laughs> when you graduate, call me and I will gladly hire you on some productions in New York. So I graduated on a Saturday and the later, literally that day, Driscoll calls me. He's like, I need an associate slash programmer on this thing in New York. And I was like, I can be there. When do you need me? He was like Monday. So I graduated on a Saturday. I packed up on Monday. I had to leave my apartment in Norman, Oklahoma, go back to my parents' house, pack up two suitcases worth of stuff. And I moved to New York City and began, you know, assistant associate programming work six years ago. And I have never gone home since. I've just been here the whole time. So that was like the beginning of my career. And it, it really took Driscoll looking at me and my work and saying, you have this thing that really calls to assist or associate or design and you should do it. And I'm going to help you get there, you know, and he just had an availability and I showed up. <laughs> Wow, that's meteoric right there. That's the fairy tale 
that uh, everybody's kind of hoping or wishing, dreaming for. Yeah. And, you know, I, I was like Driscoll's full-time associate for three and a half years. And we went all around the world producing shows and creating shows. And that time spent with him was so important and so invaluable to my work and seeing, you know, the things I really loved he did and the things I didn't love he did. And more than learning from his eye of design was learning how to talk to a room of directors, learning how to lead the room in tech, learning how to carry yourself and and make yourself marketable. And he's he's really great for taking you out to a drink and just talking about life and not getting too into the weeds about, you know, technical things. And I learned so much from him. And it's funny, the other day I was talking to him on the phone and I was like, I'm doing this podcast on uh, recording this podcast on Monday. And, you know, I just wanted to get my brain thinking because I love to, to start the, the juices flowing before I show up. And he was like, I understand you learned so much from me, but I learned so much more from working with you than I did in high school, college or grad school combined. I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, never in my life had I had an associate that would sit me down and talk to me as a human and help me through my situations that way. And I was like, oh, I guess people are just looking for human connection. And he was like, I think that's it. And I was like, well, maybe when I might my, write my memoir, I'll call it the human connection or something. He was like, well, you go do that and credit me when you're done. <laughs> wow. That is, that's saying a lot. That's how you become memorable, I think. I think that is, uh, that's how we, Man, we, we can pick each other. We can pick our relationships and our clients based on so many criteria. But at the end of the day, if, if we just don't like each other, if we just don't gel, we're not going to hang out for very long. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like nature and nurture, right? So like 50% of who you are as a human is nature and 50% is nurture. Not to bring us back to education too hardcore, even though most of this is based on education. It is invaluable to have the foundation, right? Like to know how to draft the plot, to know how to the, the elements of design or the controllable qualities of light, right? And I think if you're not participating in at least an academic institution, having a mentor that will take you through that as if you were at an institution is so important because even though today we don't hand draft, I took you know a year and a half of hand drafting in school I found that so invaluable to more than just drafting. I can apply those skills I learned in the discipline of hand drafting to, you know, anything in the industry and even in my personal life. So I think education is so important and, and making it accessible to everyone is so important. I agree. I, I shudder when I see any sort of headlines that says any sort of education budgets are being cut or, Every any time a, a school theater gets transformed into a gymnasium or something, you're like man, that is right. That is, you're going against progress here. There, there's no reason to be cutting these things. You know, the, we really need to prioritize arts again. Right, and and the not to get to into the world big picture idea, but when we look back on previous civilizations, sure, in the Greek and Roman times, we talk about math, but we we generally judge and describe them based on their art and their theater and all of all of the things that people participated in as humans living during that time. So I think by cutting out theater, you're really doing the entirety of our entire civilization a disservice of doing that, right? Like we need these, these arts to, to move forward and better ourselves. 
Oh man, uh, so that is a, that's a great tangent. We're we're way over time, but I, we have to go down this one for a second. <laughs> we are the worst species for doing exactly that. We will criticize the artists among us no end. They'll call mm-hmm. the you know the you're never going to make any money. Well, you you know you you're such a loser. And I can I can point out to like the Jimi Hendrixes, the Janis Joplins, the Kurt Cobains, the the Doors, mm-hmm. the Beatles, uh, Elvis, universally hated until until they weren't, you know, right. until you know we can even uh, the the best example have to be the painters of our generation. Oh my gosh! Yes. Like we give them zero respect, nothing until. Right. They pass away and then we finally get it. And then we're like, fuck, they were genius and we blew it. Yeah. And not to make this about anything other than it is, but one of the most, one of the most celebrated urban artists of today, which I think a piece of his art just went up for like 75 million or billion or something, which is the most expensive piece of contemporary ever was Jean-Michel Basquiat in New York City, who did so many pieces of work and so much art. And uh, unfortunately, he did not receive a cent until after he died. And now one of his artworks is going up as the most expensive piece of contemporary American art ever. And I think that's so unfortunate that all he wanted in his life was respect from others, right? All he wanted was people to see and enjoy his art, but he didn't even live to see that. And I think it's so unfortunate that we can't give uh, artists the honor of knowing they're appreciated while they're still around, right? It's like, I wish I could have bought him a meal and said, that piece of art was fucking amazing. Uh, You're going to be a star someday, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I would I would put graffiti artists up there with that, like the the mm-hmm. Banksies and stuff, and the, yes. the you know the millions of unknown graffiti artists who are just they're thought of as as uh, as loiterers and vandals, right? Until they realize, like, oh my God, the graffiti defines our area. Mm-hmm. Harlem is a perfect example of that. Like Harlem, when Absolutely. I think of Harlem, when I think of Detroit, when I think of so, I think of the graffiti. Mm-hmm. And the street art. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny is like the, <laughs> this is a, a great comparison of the difference between like graffiti in New York and graffiti in Texas, right? So graffiti in New York, you look at it, it's not anything bad. It'll often be like, uh, I think I saw one the other day, which was like a little black boy reaching up to a book and it had like knowledge written on it. I was like, that is a statement about society right now and the the inaccessibleness of education. And that's a piece of graffiti just on this wall right here. Whereas when you go to Texas and look at some of their graffiti in the suburbs, it's like butthole, big fake penis. You know what I mean? I'm just like, what does this say about your society other than a 14 year old was bored? Whereas in New York, you're creating these beautiful James Baldwin murals about, you know, commenting on our life and how it is to live in Harlem. And then in, you know, in Texas, there's like a picture of a a cat or something. I'm just like, what is this? (laughs) High school football rules. Literally. Yeah. I yeah, mean, when I was in high school. They used to draw, you know, marijuana plants on the side of the building. I was like, okay, weed. Ho-ho. Like, oh, <laughs> who cares? 
Yeah, I, I should. Uh, you, you're, you're right. I should uh, rephrase that a little bit. We don't celebrate all of the unknown artists, all of the unknown <laughs> graffiti artists. Yes. Uh, yes. But to bring that back on track a little bit, we even criticize artists when they're alive and successful. We are terrible to our artists. I mean, did did we all not witness the Super Bowl the other weekend, right? Like at the end of the day, the production was actually amazing, but everyone flooded social media with all their criticism, with all their notes. And I was like, I feel so bad for the weekend because he went through and gave us this actually amazing performance, but everyone stuck on broken gear, the fact that he sounds like he's singing in a bathroom, all these random things. And I'm like, this man has built, you know, an empire of like R&B music or soft pop, whatever they're calling it, he does. And everyone's just hating on him. I'm like, why are you hating on this poor man for doing what he does really well? Oh, man. I, I don't know if there's a parallel universe where we celebrate teachers and artists while they're alive and, and we're thankful and we're, and we're grateful for them. But man, if that exists, I mean, we gotta we gotta strive to kind of like veer our universe towards that one, man. Because we, right in Canada, it's a little bit different. Teachers are a little bit more celebrated, but the the artist thing that that's 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 species wide, man. We are just so bad to our artists. Yes, yeah. In order to end this on a high note, as opposed to that, uh, what? are you doing and how do you get to take all of the information and all the mentors and, and soak and all the stuff that you've soaked up? How do you get to transfer that to the next generation now? How do I get to transfer this to the next generation? You know, I, I participate in a lot of mentoring programs, mentorship opportunities. You know, it's funny, I'm working with Roundabout Theater Company. They have an amazing inner city mentorship theater program that is inspiring young technicians and designers. Uh, USITT keeps calling me up, and uh, I am fortunate to be giving the closing night keynote speech at USITT this year, which is virtually anywhere. I said that in air quotes because that's the title of it, but it's also virtually anywhere, which will be on March 12th. So if you are interested in hearing more, learning more about people like myself and other amazing artists, please go to usitt.org and check out the conference because there are amazing individuals, artists, BIPOC artists, people just like everyone listening, participating at USITT. Right on. Thank you so much for your time, Adam. I really appreciate it. This has been a great, a great walk down, uh, down teacher lane. And thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. I know we went completely over time, but I hope everyone can take something from this conversation. Worth every minute. I promise. <laughs> thank you. Thank you.